Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. It's December and I'm delighted to say that we've once again gathered in the shed at the end of my garden, the Cosmic Shed, home to my other podcast. But we're here to reveal the shortlist and winner of Physics World's Book of the Year 2018. I'm also delighted to say that I'm joined by Tushna Commissariat, Reviews and Careers Editor of Physics World. Hello Tushna, how are you? Hi Andrew, I'm good, it's good to be back. It always feels a bit more like Christmas when I'm in the shed. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody should come to my shed for Christmas. It's been another year of wonderful physics books. Has it been difficult to make the shortlist this year? Do you know, it's funny, it almost feels like it's difficult to make the shortlist every year because we are in this sort of almost golden age of popular science writing um, and that definitely applies to physics books too. Uh, And every year there's so many books on the shortlist that I wanted to go from 10 to 15. It's really hard Um, and I feel really bad about the books that sort of just miss out on the shortlist so in that sense it's hard but if you're if it's hard in terms of are there enough good books then no there's plenty of great books out there Mm. um so it's been a great year for science writing again for sure and this is the 10th time that uh, physics world has ever awarded the physics world book of the year so we've got a few interviews with some of the previous winners which we'll be bringing to you throughout the course of this podcast so what was the thinking behind setting up the competition in the first place? That would actually be a question for my predecessor, Margaret Harris, who has um, many a time been in the shed with the both of us, actually, Mm -hmm. talking about books. Uh, And so she set it up when she was um, reviews editor. Um, This was way back in 2009. Um, And I was thinking about this just the other day because we're doing the 10th ever winner and I kind of asked her and I was like, "What, what set it all off? And it was really interesting because... It was actually what ended up being our first ever Book of the Year winner, which was The Strangest Man, The Hidden Life of Paul Dirac, Quantum Genius, um, by Graham Formello. Um, So, as I said, this was in 2009, and this was kind of like the first or second biography of Dirac ever to be written. And um, according to Margaret, it was almost the the, the attention that this book was receiving, the the much-needed and highly-earned attention, that was a catalyst for her setting up this Physics World Book of the Year award. Um, You know, she, she she was saying to me that the book received so much kudos and praise from across the spectrum not just in some sort of uh, not just in science writing but for a book that had a much wider audience than she would have even expected and eventually won the Costa Prize for biography writing Um, and so she thought there was actually a shame that Physics World couldn't recognise it in some special way especially because um, Dirac was you know Bristol by we are based where Physics World is based um, was Dirac's hometown and so she felt she felt like there was a special connection too um, and then at the same time when she started thinking about it she realised that there were so many good books um, so many good science and physics books um, that had been published that year and that had been featured in our review section um, and so you know she quite swiftly picked up a short list of 10 um, and you know we kind of discussed it and we thought yeah there is a you know like I said that we're in this sort of golden era of science writing and so there was a very good reason to set up a physics world book of the year competition and and we have you know the criteria for our book of the year quite simple um the books must be well written novel and scientifically interesting to physicists and that's it um Mm. 
And then, yeah, ever since then, we've had, um, well, this year will be the 10th winner. Funnily enough, the cosmic shed that we're sitting in right now is probably 100 yards away from the house that Paul Dirac was born in. Absolutely, isn't it amazing? (laughs) So uh, it seemed only right that I should speak to the man who wrote the definitive biography on Paul Dirac and the man who started off, in effect, started off the Physics World Book of the Year, Graham Farmillo. It was the 2nd of August... Uh, 2002 in the early evening and I met Dirac's daughter at the the centenary of her father's birth and I was looking for a book to write I was transitioning into becoming a writer at that stage and I thought I could do business with this person that's actually quite important right some some people have the most appalling trouble with families and friends and I, I went for it basically but then the story of that book was almost without exception, one piece of luck after another. I was incredibly lucky, right? Now people jump at me and say, oh, that's, there's no such thing as luck, you did this year. I know, you've got, to, you've got to be persistent, that's true. But I could name you several things that could easily, completely out of my control, gone a completely different way. One, uh, I spoke with about a dozen of his very close friends and indeed some close members of the family who died within two years of that book being published. They're never going to be interviewed, including his the love of his life, so to speak, which was his elder daughter. I got to know her quite well, spoke to her dozens of times. She died. I had the most wonderful conversations with her. Now, I hope someone writes a better book about Dirac one day, but they're not going to be able to meet her, you see. And his closest friend for 10 years flew across America to see me with a PSA count so high you'd think he wouldn't survive the flight because he wanted to talk to me one last time about Dirac, you see. The other thing, perhaps the most obvious thing in the book, is this amazing tranche of private correspondence that was in the linen cupboard of his daughter. Right? In fact, it was in a garage for years, and I didn't know what was in them. And I finished the book, or at least the draft, a good, more than one draft, the second draft of the book, and, I, and Monica, his, uh, his uh, younger daughter, um, invited me out, and I got letters to this day, you know, give me goosebumps. Of, you know, love letters Dirac wrote, things, things that people would not believe existed, right? So, two incredible pieces of luck. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Those letters could have got, gone down in the Queen Mary. And how, how long was the whole process from beginning that? Uh, about, five, about four or five years, working very, very hard on it. And then you release it and the awards start coming. Obviously, the most important one is the Physics World Book of the Year. Oh, without a doubt, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very gratifying that uh, I let, I'll be honest, I knew I got a great story, right? But that's not the same thing as having a successful book, right? I thought, well, you may have screwed this up. I might tell you, you know, there are plenty of people, uh, uh, David, uh, uh, the sainted David Attenborough, right? I met at a lovely garden party. I mean, a total, or, I mean, I genuinely regard him as a, a really wonderful human being. And he read the book and he said, science is a bit challenging for me, right? <laughs> Actually, he may, he may have said physics. But it just brought me home. It brought it home to me, you know. For a, if you're a real expert in physics, right? That book was easy, easy peasy to read. Even if you're someone as intelligent, uh, literate as David Attenborough, you know, it's not easy. I still regard that book as getting away with it, because uh, I was trying to do what most people in publishing would say was a crazy thing which is writing a book that I hope would be respected by real physicists, but would be read by people that don't know any physics. 
that's a very very difficult thing to do and i was quite fearful that it were and there i know i know i've met dozens of people who've read that book and flicked over the physics all of the physics every bit of it and are you thinking about that all the time that you're writing it you think yes i am and sometimes i get it wildly wrong right when i'm writing and i'm a since i worked at the open university i've always relished having other people read my stuff and other people edit my stuff i really don't believe i mean i do believe the author ought to have the last word i do believe that but i do also believe just as strongly that he or she is a very poor judge in the early i mean i don't know whether you've done this in your writing but most of my first drafts are terrible right but i think they're wonderful when i write them yeah, yeah. Uh, but when i look back think, who wrote this rubbish there's still i still find sentences in my books when i think i cannot have written that uh, but it, yes it was nice when that award came from physics world and if, if you know i won a, a couple of others as well that was uh, uh you know a, a, a real delight and and i say I don't, I don't take it for granted it's it's not easy to get noticed in the in in the world of books it really isn't and that is something that we feel too that we come across these books and they're amazing and um quite often we're left wondering whether there are enough people reading these books and by virtue of um awarding these books whether they're on the shortlist or indeed the winner um it does get them the amount of publicity a certain amount of publicity uh, in the sense that more people become aware of the book and more people want to read it, you might not be able to read every single science book that comes out and you might feel like, oh, there's so many. But sometimes when you have a short list, and especially when it's handy just in time for Christmas, mm-hmm. um, it you know it's quite good. I mean, I was really pleased to see that, um, you know, I sort of tweeted out our top 10 short list the other day uh, and someone retweeted it and sent it to all their followers saying, this right here is my Christmas list. and that's wonderful you know and that's what kind of what we're hoping we're hoping that other people read these excellent books that we've enjoyed so much and that deserve the attention yeah i would say also as the host of this podcast that i do get feedback as well from listeners saying that this is their favorite episode of the year each year and uh, i also find myself adding books to my own christmas list (laughs) as a result of this podcast and graham farmello's book has just gone on my christmas list Oh, that's wonderful I also spoke to the 2010 winner of Physics World Book of the Year, Anil Ananthaswamy, about his book, The Edge of Physics, A Journey to Earth's Extremes to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe. It was very good affirmation because it was the first book I had written and getting an award like this uh, meant a lot because uh, when you're beginning to write books, it's really a daunting task and to you really don't know how these books are getting you know, received by the public and by people who uh, think critically about it. So, yeah, it was a, uh, it was very uh, important for me, just as as a writer, to be recognised. Did you think how can I get paid to go to the most amazing places on earth? Oh no, it was quite the opposite. I was I was going to go to those places regardless of whether anyone paid me for it or not. Um, <laughs> it was it was very much a project. Uh, born out of passion for these experiments and these places. Hmm. I I wanted to get across a feeling for physics more than describing, you know, or rather than just describing what's happening in the, you know, with the physics. Um, so I would have done it. Well, at least that was the intention. I would have done it uh, regardless, but it just happened that I got a contract from a book publisher uh, to write the book. So, I mean, 
one should point out that book publishers don't pay you um, travel allowances. So that still came out of my pocket. Uh -oh. uh, but it was part of a contract for writing a book. So I was willing, you know, it, it didn't pinch as much. Yeah, for sure. Are you writing while you're there? Are you, are you literally writing the things down whilst you're in the places or do you come back and, and, and think about it more and then write and find the connections between them and that sort of thing? I I have a terrible memory, so I don't remember, you know, if I saw something today and I slept over it and didn't write something down, then the next morning it's all hazy for me. So I would take notes very diligently during the day. Um, I didn't write the chapters or I didn't write material for the book per se, but I was taking detailed notes yeah. or recording things or taking photographs or something, you know, basically making sure I had as much information, as much of the details about what I was witnessing as I went along. I, I tried not to sleep over it because that was a sure way of forgetting things. Do you read a lot of other authors' books? I do. Um, oddly enough, I used to read a lot more when I was not writing for a living. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, once I became a writer, the amount of readings, sadly, comes down. But I still do read. You know, I read either physics or neuroscience. Uh, off late, neuroscience has been, far, you know, something that I've become more and more interested in. Any any of the books by Oliver Sacks, um, for me, I mean, the, the science books that have grabbed me usually kind of fall into three types books that are good because they are explaining the science really well, books that you know are really good pieces of writing, and then there are books that combine both. They're fabulous pieces of writing and also explain the science really well. And, and I, you know there are books for me that fall into all those three categories. I just had a book come out uh, about three months ago called Through Two Doors at Once. That's uh, a book about the story of quantum mechanics told through the lens of the double slit experiment. I'm still at the tail end of doing publicity for that. Um, I have some ideas, but they're kind of ill-formed at this point. It would be unwise of me to try and speak about them. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I'm thinking about a couple of ideas. It'll take a while for them to get fleshed out. You know, big thank you to Physics World for uh, doing this every year. I think for people who write about physics, um, it's a it's a wonderful place to be appreciated. So thank you. We've had a huge and amazing variety of books, and some of them are very much about you know biographies of amazing people such as Dirac or exciting places and exciting science um, and sometimes you have these wonderfully personal stories and that was something especially interesting poignant and in the end what made a fantastic story um, was Amanda Gafter's um, book Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn which was it was so personal it was this wonderful father-daughter story but that also had the most amazing um, science in it um, and, and, and I thought she did something that really I didn't think was possible until she did it and she did it brilliantly. And Amanda won the Physics World Book of the Year in 2015 for her book entitled Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn and I caught up with her this week. I write primarily about uh, theoretical physics and cosmology because I want to understand it. <laughs> I always wanted to be a writer um, but I sort of fell in love with physics and just really 
wanted to understand it on a deep level, despite not having the right sort of educational background for it in terms of mathematics and stuff. And so, so I realized early on that, that writing about it and getting to talk with physicists and, um, and ask questions really helped me sort of work through these ideas and then um, sort of share what I figure out with everyone else. <laughs> But I think the way I come at it is more the way a lot of readers are coming at it. And so I think I can sort of act as a proxy for the reader in that sense and ask the questions that they would want to ask and explain it in a way that makes sense to me, which is probably going to be the way that it makes sense to them. Um, so I think in terms of just helping people understand things, like I'm in the same position as they are. So I think that that can be useful. I, I hesitate to use the phrase, but do you get eureka moments quite often when you're so if you're if you don't come from a point of you know having done a physics degree when you sort of understand something about quantum physics or is, is it a constant kind of joy for you to hit to, to understand those things yeah i feel like i have a lot of them and then i'll i'll have a eureka moment and then realize that i understood it totally wrong and have another eureka moment to fix it <laughs> yeah you wrote Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn, which is a delightfully titled book. It is the story of my father and I um, wanting to understand kind of the mysteries of the universe. And um, and it sort of starts off when I'm a teenager and my my dad, who's this kind of like, he has this kind of Zen guru quality to him, um, asked me this question, how would you define nothing? And that sort of set off this chain of events that um, resulted in our um, sneaking into a physics conference by pretending to be science journalists long before I was actually a science journalist. And, uh, and so we sort of faked our way in and got to meet all these physicists and it was like this amazing experience. And then I was kind of like, oh, you know, if I was a real physics writer, I could do this all the time. And yeah. that sort of uh, my fake career became a real career. And um, and so the book is sort of this whole story of my dad and I trying to understand the mysteries of the universe. And so it has this kind of coming of age, father-daughter memoir side to it. But then through that, I'm trying to explain like, you know, really deep things in physics. But you won the Physics World uh, Book of the Year Prize in 2015. I was really honored and surprised, and it was very validating in a way. Um, you know, particularly because it's sort of a strange, non-traditional book, um, people weren't sure always what to make of it. Like, there was definitely, um, I think it found the right readers, but then there was also people who were kind of like, what's all this physics doing in my memoir, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so, but in my heart, it had always been intended to be a physics book um and it just sort of had this like narrative framework um but there was definitely people that were like oh it's this memoir but it's sort of like there's all this complicated physics and i don't understand why it's there um so to have it get like a physics award specifically um was just really heartwarming <laughs> mm. does it make you want to write another one yeah i'm actually just finishing another one right now um uh, yeah i think that the, the first one sort of messed me up because it, it, uh, it came out easier than I think other books will in the future. So it gave me like a false impression of what book writing is like. Okay. So that's <laughs> been more difficult. It's been much more difficult. Yeah. 
Okay, what's it about? It's about kind of the intersections of fundamental physics and cognitive science. And it's told through the story of this guy named Peter Putnam, who no one's ever heard of, but was sort of in the circle of physicists with like John Wheeler and Einstein and Bohr and all these sort of amazing people. And he has this kind of crazy personal story, uh, but he was working at this kind of intersection between how does the brain work and what is the physical world and how do we think about their relationship? Like everything we know, we know through our brains, (laughs) Mm. um, including the physical world. You know, there's this kind of like circular, like MC Escher, like each hand drawing the other kind of situation where um, everything we know about the physical universe, we know through the brain, but we only understand the brain using what we know about the physical universe. (laughs) And so I was really curious about like, how do you start to like disentangle these things without going in a kind of crackpot direction of, you know, like weird consciousness stuff so I think there's like more and more crossover that I'm seeing between physics and cognitive science and I'm finding that really interesting. Margaret had met her at some point when she was working on the book and she'd said that she was working on a book about cosmology and Margaret inadvertently pulled a bit of a face because oh lord another book about cosmology (laughs) Um, and then sort of forgot about it and then once the book came out and Margaret read it and it absolutely won our book of the year she later on she she asked she asked why why book on cosmology and, and, and Amanda said that this is a book that only I can write and that was amazing and that's really special I think and it's, it's that kind of thing it's it's insight into someone's life in such a wonderful way but also into into science and how science shapes someone's world uh, and, and, and that was also something really special about David Kaiser's book How the Hippies Saved Physics it was about these really interesting people and how they saw the world and what they thought was important that had huge implications for quantum mechanics which as we all know is one of the most interesting things in science and in physics right now Mm. In the 1970s there was an eccentric group of physicists in California who banded together to explore the wilder side of science They dubbed themselves the Fundamental Physics Group, physics spelt with an F, and they pursued a speculative approach studying quantum entanglement in terms of Eastern mysticism and psychic mind reading. David Kaiser's book reveals how these unlikely heroes spun modern physics in a new direction, forcing mainstream physicists to pay attention to that strange but exciting underpinning of quantum theory. The title was really meant to be, um, in part, tongue-in-cheek, and I do go into this in the introduction of the book as well. Um, I don't think any small number of of, uh, physicists at any point in history, you know, literally saved the entire discipline. A discipline that today includes, you know, many hundreds of thousands of people around the world. So the title was indeed actually meant to highlight the kind of mismatch or or the, the surprising gap, at least surprised me, between the, the kind of impact that this particular small group of very you know colorful folks I, I, I was writing about, the, the gap between their kind of professional standing and, and the, the situation they found themselves in at the time about which I was writing, and the kind of longer-term um, intellectual legacy that they really were able to leave. So do they save all the physics? No. I mean, that, you know, that's, that's really just to get the discussion going. But they did work in unusual circumstances, asking questions that at the time were not questions that were broadly considered interesting or relevant, although over time they've, those, many of those questions have come into the, into the mainstream. 
And from their kind of curious, sometimes rather precarious perch, they kind of carved out a, a different way of trying to work with each other and, and, and pr pursue these questions. They were really kind of relentlessly and often very playfully um, kind of chipping away at some questions that nowadays do seem really fascinating, increasingly central to many uh, areas of the discipline. And the group either came up with really lasting uh, um, answers or more often than not, kind of pushed and pushed and catalyzed, pushed the discussions forward and in the hands of some of the people with whom they were you know, arguing and debating and sharing ideas, the larger community, you know, reached new conclusions about some very deep questions about the very nature of quantum theory at a deep level, the seemingly the difficult or at least not straightforward relations between something like um, quantum entanglement and special relativity. Can we have something influencing uh, some distant object, you know, fast in the speed of light, and that raises all kinds of of real deep challenges. So the group, so the title really is meant to say it's playful. They didn't save all the physics. I don't think any small group did, but they were they were making genuine, robust contributions from a pretty surprising um, kind of perch. Funny, the book came about by accident, which is um, I had been working very, very doggedly on a different book project, broader study of physics in the Cold War, mostly looking in the U.S., but with some comparative, um, you know, investigation. And I had in mind, I would have, I called it in my head, that 70s chapter, like the old TV show, that, that 70s show. And I, because we, we as, as scientists, as historians, we've learned a lot over 30 years of, of scholarship about this sort of a different unusual period in, in the field's history, which is a period coming right after World War II. So from the late 1940s, really into the late 1960s, a 20 or almost 25 year period of just exponential growth in in everything we can choose to count about physics in the number of new physics students enrollments grew faster than any other field which is a booming field in, in sort of popularity in the employment prospects for those physicists so we especially in the united states we trained more physicists than ever before and more of them got jobs than ever before it was this sort of both supply and demand just rocketing forward funding numbers of articles in the journals i mean anything we can kind of count anything we can put in a spreadsheet was growing exponentially after World War II. And we know a lot about that process. We know a lot about what was driving it and, and so on. And so what interested me was what happens when that period of growth comes to a very quick, and for many, a surprising end, when there was a real, re literally, reversal of fortunes. And that really, especially in the United States, though very similarly in, in places like the UK and elsewhere, the kind of boom times turns to bust very quickly, right around 1970, plus or minus, 71, 72, where suddenly there, were, there was a huge glut, a huge oversupply, for example, of young PhD physicists with, with a, like a vanishing job market. The, the opportunities both within academia, within industrial labs, in government labs, everything just kind of crashed. Funding went down by huge uh, proportions. So what's it like to grow up in the field when, when, when the horizons seem to be shrinking, when the, when the um, opportunities seem nothing like what they seemed in 1960 or even as recently as 1965. So I, that was curious. And I was going to write a chapter about the kind of this sort of the, after the bubble has burst for, uh, in, the, in, the, in the longer context of, of physics after World War II. And I found, I kind of stumbled onto this group uh, that, I, that wound up being the center of, of, of the book that I did write, a group that called themselves the Fundamental Physics Group. And their story just became more and more curious and fascinating and convoluted and just at times just like mesmerizing to me. But I basically pulled out what was going to be one chapter 
and realize this story has its own kind of arc. There's, there's a separate set of kind of questions to ask of this more kind of close focus material. So I, I had spent um, a year on sabbatical, which was always a great thing, trying to get my homework done, trying to finish this book on, the, on physics in the Cold War. And like eight months in, I looked up from my little, you know, cubby holes and said, my God, what have I done? <laughs> I wrote a different book, or I wrote most of a different book. It's a fun and curious kind of unexpected story. It was much richer than I expected. It, it, there were like these tendrils that I kept getting to, to kind of chase down, little, little um, uh, offshoot topics that I just hadn't known about beforehand. Part of what I find so exciting when I put my physicist cap back on and try to work very hard at the edges of what we just don't know yet, of which there are many, many things, is that, you know, we, what it's like to be working at or near a frontier where, where we don't really know what we're looking for. Things look, I mean, it's, we, we, we can tell the history of how Einstein came to relativity with the, with the benefit of a century of hindsight because we sort of know how the story works out. But, that, but if we want to understand how did Einstein get there, we better not start from knowing the answer, right? We might, in other words, we're going to have a different kind of story to tell. It was like, when did he finally get the right answer as opposed to what was driving him during periods, and in Einstein's case, a decade of, of kind of wandering um, by his own lights being more, more often wrong than correct in his, in his efforts to come up with what we now see as his crowning achievement of, of let's say, general relativity. It's been wonderful talking about and talking to some of the previous winners. But let's get on to the short list for the 2018 Physics World Book of the Year. There seemed a very clear trend um, which sort of bucked the previous trend of it really all being about cosmology. Um, and, and OK, let, let's be honest, there were plenty of books about cosmology and plenty of books about astronomy. Um, and they were good and interesting, but that market is a bit saturated. It's really hard, I think, now to do something really different. Um, and you could almost say the same about books about quantum mechanics, but this was the year. The, 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 the word of the year seems to be quantum yeah. <laughs> at this point, yeah. um, which I think is terribly exciting uh, and appropriate, I would say. And so it's no surprise that three of the books um, out of the ten on our shortlist um, all had a very clear quantum theme and in fact um, there were a couple of others that we did too that I just could not squeeze onto the list otherwise it would have been the quantum books list (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that were also really very good and just about missed out because we had to somehow choose Um, so there's a definite quantum feel to the books Um, so before you begin, yeah. can I just declare an interest? Because I actually reviewed one of the books that ended up on the shortlist, which was Treknology, The Science of Star Trek, by Ethan Siegel. It's a wonderful book. It is literally the only book that you need on The Science of Star Trek. All others can be forgotten. But, Toshna, what else is on the shortlist? <laughs> Um, so yes, indeed, there is the wonderful technology, which is, uh, as you very rightfully pointed out, Andrew, it's it's a great book, whether or not you're actually interested in Star Trek. I mean, you will probably enjoy it a lot more if you're a Trekkie, but if you're not, you might be convinced to watch Star Trek, or you might be impressed by the amount of relatively solid science that they have in there so that is an excellent book and in a sort of similar vein of um sort of astronomy is ad astra by um veteran science writer dallas campbell um so as the 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 subtitle of the book is an illustrated guide to leaving the planet um and it's you know an absolutely wonderful sort of almost like a handy sort of reference book it's the book that you want in your back pocket as you do maybe plan your trip on leaving the planet um 
I've read that one as well. I have, have to you? say, yeah, Excellent. and it is highly entertaining. Mm. Really, very. It's a really. You can just pick it up, have a browse through it, or you can lie in bed and read it all night. Excellent. And, you know, it's a good time to be talking about human spaceflight, what with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo mission next year. Um, so, yeah, Dallas's book is excellent. Of course, an, a, a sort of instant entry to the list, um, and was it's been mentioned by so many other science writers as one of their favourite books already. It's um, Carlo Rovelli's The Order of Time. Um, you know, we, we, we kind of... We almost had to think about this one a little bit because one of the main things on our list is, on our criteria is novel. Um, And we wondered for a minute that, you know, yet another book on time. But no, it is novel because because of Ravelli's amazingly wonderful take in the the way he he writes. He's a physicist, poet, philosopher. um, And somehow he, 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 you know, condenses extremely complex ideas into verse and poetry and he seems to have touched so many people and I think he writes so brilliantly that I'm sure that there is a vast subsect of people who read his books and maybe don't even understand the science but are so impressed by it that they just enjoy reading it so and I believe the audio book is read by Benedict Cumberbatch. Indeed. So if there's anything that you can do to make a book better, it's to get Benedict Cumberbatch to read it. Another kind of interesting trend that I'm noticing more and more, and I'm I'm almost beginning to wonder whether it's going to it's going to be half the books on our list next year, is this idea of illustrated books. Or indeed, we've had two books this year, um, one of which is on the shortlist and the other that narrowly missed out, um, which are what you would describe as a comic book or a graphic novel, Mm -hmm. more accurately, um, that is completely non-fiction and deals with solid science. Um, So the one on our shortlist is The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe by Clifford Johnson. Now Clifford is an amazing artist, he's completely self-taught, which if you see the detail and intricacy of his drawing you'd be superbly impressed by. He's also a theoretical physicist based in the US um, and I thought that the dialogues was absolutely fascinating. It's it's in the shape of 11 conversations um, mostly between two or a few more people uh, and they have this sort of um, teacher-pupil relationship as a format of discussion and he deals with really complex ideas including you know string theory and supersymmetry but in a graphic novel format and I really enjoyed that the other book that did not make it in the end onto um, the shortlist was totally random another quantum physics book by Tanya and Jeffrey Bubb uh, and again that was exactly the same uh, graphic novel so that seems to be an interesting new trend and I'm I'm really looking forward to that if that really takes on Mm. i'd be interested to see if um, some people dismiss these books because they're just not maybe um, used to reading comic books Mm. (laughs) or if maybe perhaps um, which which is completely understandable that if you do not enjoy that kind of illustration you might be put off by the book Um, but i think there's some yeah it's really interesting there's obviously there's it feels like there's a big cross-section between the people who are science interested people and those who love graphic novels i don't know whether that's true but it certainly feels (laughs) like if i go to a comic con which i am known to do occasionally the people who are interested in science is not a small percentage absolutely and uh, so it seems like a, a, a good way to go and it'd be uh yeah be Interesting to see whether that continues. Indeed. So another, uh, so a very hot topic at 
physics conferences this year and it's been doesn't matter what the conference is or what sub area of physics it is it's a hot topic it's around um ai and machine learning uh and so a very sort of well-deserved book on the list on the short list this year is hello world how to be human in the age of the machine by hannah fry hannah's book was also on the short list for the royal society science book of the year i could see people maybe saying oh well what's it got to do with physics but as I mentioned there's so much interesting um, applications of machine learning and AI and physics really understanding how to talk to machines and algorithms really which is what Hannah's book is really all about is mm. very important I think um, I should say as well that, that the episode of the Physics World Stories podcast on artificial intelligence is one of our most listened to episodes of the year well, there you go. Yeah. So it's definite hot topic. And I think so. That's why I think Hello World is great. And, you know, our, our reviewer, who's Physics World's very own Anna Deming, she described it as an anthology of algorithm related anecdotes, which I think is brilliant. And the funny part about the book is that there's a lot of things where it all kind of goes horribly wrong. You know, it's almost like how not to talk to machines, maybe. Um, and so I think it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting and probably um, necessary reading for the modern physicist. Another book on our list which has been getting a lot of attention and publicity, all of it very well deserved this year, is Sabine Hossenfelder's Lost in Math, How Beauty Leads Physics Astray. Um, now Sabine is, um, I'm sure probably many people listening to the Physics World podcast will know Sabine. She is a theoretical physicist, she is also an extremely prolific blogger um, and for years and years has written the excellent blog Back Reaction. Um, she's a friend of Physics World, she's written for us many times yeah and she she took on the challenge of writing this sort of, I would say it's a very difficult first book, she's been very bold with coming in with this kind of book and really what she's what she's saying is that she, she feels that she's rather dissatisfied and very ill at ease with the state of theoretical physics and especially the kind of theoretical physics that she in fact does which is around cosmology and fundamental um, theoretical physics um, and she feels that many of the big ideas that are really the sort of most accepted in fundamental physics today so this is whether it's supersymmetry, string theory, inflation, M-theory, what extra dimensions, whatever, she feels that this physicists have been led astray by this idea of beauty, mm. beauty in physics, and she thinks that it's led them down a very sort of um, a dangerous um, dead end almost. It's also a very necessary book I think I think probably the last time we've had a book like this it would be another veteran blogger and a good friend of Sabine's um Peter Voigt who 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 wrote his of course highly scandalous um book Not Even Wrong yeah. which you can hear all about in Physics World podcast from a couple of years ago now. Yeah. I should mention that Sabine's book was very much one of the ones that was kind of in our top three for winning this year um, and um, we'll find out in a bit if it made it or not. And in a very similar vein almost but from not from today at all um, is um, Exact Thinking in Demented Times, The Vienna Circle and The Epic Quest for the Foundations of Science by Carl Sigmund now this was an absolutely fascinating book you know the Vienna Circle was this this sort of group of polymaths 
and uh, they sort of all met and hung out in Vienna at coffee houses mm. or big scientific meetings and they had these big thoughts and they were true giants of science and philosophy and they laid the foundations for a lot of the things that we're talking about today. It was very interesting to see actually beyond the actual science or philosophy that they dealt in how much their personal ideas personalities worldviews and what was happening in the world then what was happening uh, during the first and second world war in the aftermath how it actually influences the science you know and it takes away from this idea that science is above everything else including politics it's not but how it can have real impact mm. Uh, on the science so that really leaves us with the three quantum physics books that i haven't mentioned ah. so far <laughs> it actually um talking about exact thinking in dementia times brings us brilliantly into um one of the most excellent books that we've had this year everyone from the reviewer to so many other popular science writers and reviewers have been raving about what is real the unfinished quest for the meaning of quantum physics by adam becker now this is again a bit of a newcomer who's just kind of come in and galloped up to the very front of the line um adam he's a science journalist been writing about physics for many years now and he's also um got a degree in physics um, and is also a veteran science writer but this is his first ever book what he's done is really told us the story about the foundation of quantum mechanics again at the start of the 20th century but he's kind of shifted the perspective so instead of going in uh, and telling us again about what Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg and Schrodinger and the others thought he's kind of put the people who are maybe slightly in the background or maybe not as popular or whose theories didn't become as accepted um he's he's put the spotlight on these people um so this would be people such as Hugh Everett who came up with the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics which has actually seen a bit of a resurgence in recent times or David Bohm who had his pilot wave theory and these are this at the heart of it this is the thing that quantum mechanics it's amazing and fascinating but we still don't at a very fundamental level have a perfect theory for it in that we do not quite know how to interpret it mm. and so these are these many interpretations of quantum mechanics and most people now would probably agree that the most popular one is the the sort of so-called Copenhagen interpretation that was developed by Bohr and Heisenberg and what Becker does is tells the story about why that dominated how Bohr developed such a following and why his Copenhagen interpretation sort of emerged victorious over the other interpretations to the point where it's still sort of considered the most accepted even though it's being challenged a bit now ah that's intriguing but we'll come back to those questions about the Copenhagen interpretation later if if you would like to really understand what laid the foundations of quantum mechanics back then then becker's book is perfectly for you i believe that is eight books two more and then we must reveal the winner the history of science books where they t they talk about the history and the science is a really fascinating angle on it but there is another angle which i hadn't thought of which comes up in one of the last two books on our list toshna what have quantum physics and heavy metal got to do with each other 
Well, I think the main thing that they have in common is um, Nottingham University um, physicist and science writer Philip Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Phil, uh, who is a, an excellent writer and has been involved in some kind of science communication for years now, he's been involved in the 60 Symbols YouTube series, he's written uh, many blogs and he's a prolific writer again. And his first book is the absolutely intriguingly titled When the Uncertainty Principle Goes to Eleven or How to Explain Quantum Physics with Heavy Metal. <laughs> <laughs> I think that definitely goes on your list of fascinating titles. It certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> In case you haven't figured it out already, Phil himself is a um, heavy metal aficionado. Mm-hmm. In our quest to explain quantum mechanics over over the past century, I would say almost, I think scientists and science writers have tried to come up with any means to explain it in a way we understand. And I don't see why heavy metal isn't a great way to do that. Um, and 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 and. and I think I, I love the idea that you have both both quantum mechanics and heavy metal have their very ingrained niche fans, mm. and that you could use this book to convert fans of one into another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should mention that Phil's book, although it, it says quantum mechanics in the title, he actually covers a lot more of physics than just quantum mechanics. It's actually much more overarching than that. Mm. How does the book work, though? Is he sort of, does he go, um, Iron Maiden, right, let's talk about <laughs> <laughs> quantum physics through the prism of the number of the beast. What, I mean, how does it work? <laughs> Not quite like that, not quite like that. The really good thing that Philip Moriarty has going for him is that music, whatever music it might, whatever genre of music it might be, that music and physics have this amazing symmetry and are interlinked and you can use one to explain the other. And I think he starts off with that. So quite early in the book, you might come across Fourier transforms and or you might you know, come across what the sine wave of a particular Metallica song sounds like. Mm. And so he takes that kind of thing and he takes these wonderful anecdotes of being at a gig somewhere um, and and uses that as a sort of jumping off point to take you much further into it and so if you understand the analogies of one you can go along for the other now you might be worried that you you know you might not exactly be up on your heavy metal glossary but fear not everything from a mosh pit to guitar shredding is explained via Phil's footnotes and on, on the flip side you know the Fourier transforms and definitions of nanotechnology are equally explained. The book is also enchantingly illustrated um, these lovely sort of black and white ink sketches by uh, Pete McPartlin um, that really help they, they, they really um, make it so much more fun and I, I didn't quite think that you could use a mosh pit to discuss ideas about macro and nano Marsha um, which is a little mosh pit <laughs> nice. uh, and indeed um, that is what Phil and Pete managed to do in their book so in terms Fantastic. of having something that's purely novel i think phil moriarty's book definitely ticks the box and last on the short list but by no means least is our winner of this year's physics world book of the year so tushna who is our winner so if you've seen our shortlist then you already know that our winning book of the year is philip ball's beyond weird why everything you thought you knew about quantum physics is different <laughs> 
Um, I kind of love the slightly clickbaity sound of the, you know, you, you almost, your brain's going, well, everything you thought you know about quantum physics is wrong. He's attempting to lure us away from the idea that quantum physics is spooky, strange, impenetrable, and impossible for us to understand. Congratulations to Philip Ball for winning this year's Physics World Book of the Year. Why did you choose this book? As I mentioned, it was a really tough call. We kind of knew pretty early on that it was between Philip's Beyond Weird, um, Adam's uh, What Is Real and Sabine's Lost in Math. Um, And then the more we discussed it, we thought that it was probably between the two quantum titles. Uh, And in the end, we went for Phil's Beyond Weird because really... What Phil is doing is really trying to take away this weird or spooky label that quantum mechanics has. And it rightfully has this, you know, everyone from Albert Einstein to Richard Feynman, Niels Bohr even, who invented it, you know, we have these wonderful quotes by these people talking about how it absolutely can't understand it or how strange it is. Um, And so unfortunately, that's what's predominantly in our minds. And you know, if you're really building technology from using the science or you're using it as a way to understand the underpinnings of the universe itself, you can't walk around going, oh, but how spooky, how strange. Mm. Um, and what Phil says, so in no way does he deny that there are strange phenomena in quantum mechanics. He just says there's, it's nothing truly weird about it because it's just how nature is. So it's just it just is this way. It's the similar thing you you know. I think if you think about it in terms of bacterial science, maybe was first being developed. I think nobody now is thrown off by the fact that there are these tiny microscopic creatures that live in our body, that live on our face, that are completely um, everywhere in our environment. We don't kind of deny it. We don't say oh weird, spooky. You know, it's kind of it's strange. It's something a bit odd, maybe. Maybe, uh, but and it's something that we can't see or perceive. But it's completely understood, and 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 no one thinks of it as this magical thing that you could maybe use to travel through space and time with as sometimes the kind of quantum woo um, that happens and 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 I think it's a similar thing with quantum mechanics we've just got to get our heads around the fact the, the weirdness is in our perception and not in nature itself and I think that's a really important thing as we come to this quantum revolution this technology revolution for us to understand um, and what Phil also does is he um, you know it's not that he ignores science he there's plenty of science in his book there's plenty of quantum mechanics in his book but he uses that as almost a scaffolding to talk to us about these interpretations. There's also a healthy dose of solid philosophy and it makes a very good case of why it's really necessary for the science and philosophy to go hand in hand for us to understand the sort of underpinnings of the universe. Beyond Weird also really makes an excellent case for why information is so key to our understanding of quantum physics. So Phil makes a very bold claim that it's a combination of information and how we do an experiment that gives us any kind of meaning in quantum mechanics, that you have to base the meaning on these two aspects, on the information that you have and how you are doing the experiment. And that is the only way we can have anything logical. Right at the very end of his book, he makes this what I think is truly poignant suggestion so he says we shouldn't say that here it is a particle and there it is a wave of course talking about wave particle Mm -hmm. duality he says instead we should say if we measure things like 
surface, the quantum object behaves in a manner we associate with particles, but if we measure it like that, it behaves as if it's a wave. Uh. And so he, he then says that this ifness is it's perplexing because it's not what we've come to associate with science with all science so far we're used to science telling us how things are and if ifs arise it's just because we have partial ignorance it's that we don't know enough about the thing but in quantum mechanics the ifs are fundamental and this is brilliant this was actually einstein's major issue with quantum mechanics he thought that there was all this hidden variables hidden information and and phil kind of says that no it's just that this is the nature of quantum mechanics itself and we've just got to stop trying to find a way through it and almost come to terms with it it's an excellent book it's very powerful it's um brilliantly written phil is such a such a he's he's the kind of person who you want to take you along on this journey he's the perfect person to do it i should mention that in 2014 uh when mark mendownick's excellent book stuff matters um won our book of the year um phil's Philip Ball's book, um, Serving the Reich, was also on our shortlist, and he very closely missed out to winning that year. And some good news there for those who didn't win, but we're on the shortlist shortlist this year, which is, of course, you just need to write another book and you may well win the award in the future. (laughs) But I caught up with Philip Ball the other day and gave him the good news. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. I kind of thought it's going to be Carlo Rovelli or or maybe, you know, Sabine's uh, book has created so much interest as as well. But I thought Carlo's was just lovely. It was brilliantly written. So (laughs) have you read a few of them on the list then? Yeah, I probably have read even most of them. I mean, I've obviously I've read Adam Becker's book um i reviewed well i reviewed carlos for um new scientist and reviewed sabine's for prospect magazine can't remember and, and in fact um of course phil uh, philip moriarty's book was on there as well which i did a blurb for so yeah probably <laughs> i've reviewed most of them in one way or another and clearly you know with something like adam's book i had to know what that said to just get some sense of how it compared to to mine which was kind of interesting both his and annie and anthaswamy's books you know that coming out at the same time um yeah it was just kind of interesting to see our different perspectives Mm. on what it all meant Mm. you know everyone has a different take on quantum mechanics and so there were certainly things that i you know agreed with and things that i didn't i mean with adam for example um he was very much anti the copenhagen interpretation and i sort of i can't help feeling there's a bit of a a sort of trend at the moment to knock Copenhagen as um, something that's kind of monolithic and has dominated and has just got in the way of deeper inquiry. I I kind of feel there is no perfect interpretation that really tells us what this stuff means, but they all have things that are worth thinking about, um, some more than others, but, you know, there's something in all uh, in all of them worth thinking about. And Copenhagen, to me, the value of it is that it tells us where what we can say with confidence has to stop, you know, beyond which we're making interpretations. You know, for some people, what Neil Spohr said in that regard um, was too sort of proscriptive, that they interpret him as saying, you can only say this much and no more. And that's one way of reading it. But I kind of look at it, and I think a lot of people look at it now, more as saying, 
we can only be confident up to this point, but that doesn't mean we can't try to go beyond it. It's just that in going beyond it, we need to sort of recognize <laughs> now we're into the, the area of interpretation. So, yeah, I, you know, I sort of felt um, I was far less down on Copenhagen in principle than than Adam was. And, you know, and Eels, I kind of felt it, he had, again, like a lot of people, I think, um, who write about this stuff, he had more sympathy for the Bohmian interpretation of quantum mechanics, the pilot wave idea, than I do. So, you know, it was just interesting to see what different takes we had. But I think all of us felt um, there's no clear answer, there's no definitive answer, and we need to be open to different ideas. And so in that sense, I feel like we were all basically coming from the same perspective. For sure. So it t- take me back to the beginning of starting to think about writing the book. Well, th- this was one, I guess, um, quite often, uh, probably most of the books I write, I will, you know, come across an idea or a little thread and start to follow it. And this book, it was a bit different because I, for one reason or another, I found myself writing articles about quantum, about different aspects of quantum mechanics for different magazines and including nature. And, um, it just started to dawn on me as I did that. Hang on a minute. Are we telling this story in the right way? Um, you know, anyone who sort of writes about quantum mechanics as a science writer tends to draw on the same, you know, grab bag of, of ideas, um, uh, some in some ways of cliched ideas. And I started to sort of see that they, they, they were not just cliches, but that they were kind of misleading cliches um you know that we'll always we, we would always tend to sort of say okay superpositions mean the the thing is in two states at once um entanglement means that you have this spooky action at a distance that you know this thing here seems to instantaneously affect this thing there and, and those things are, are, are not really right and i started to sort of appreciate that and to think well i think we can do better than this but also the, the reason we can do better than this is because things have moved on since certainly since the 1980s let alone since the time of Born einstein um because there are these experiments we can now do that were once thought experiments um and you know that people in the field are kind of saying there's been a real renaissance in <clears throat> in quantum foundations over the past couple of decades really because of the ability to do these experiments you know sophisticated versions of the bell test being the obvious one but lots of others too another key theme seemed to be the emergence of an under, the understanding emergence of what decoherence means in quantum mechanics and all of these things together seemed to me to be enabling us to tell a different story but it wasn't one that i saw being told particularly in popular writing about quantum mechanics so i felt uh, almost i guess not with a sinking heart but i sort of felt almost resigned to the fact that i've got to write this book <laughs> because and, and you know and i knew that um, it's still this hugely contentious field and you know there are lots of arguments and controversies and in in writing a book like this you're going to upset some people or at least you're not going to to, to please everyone um, but I felt you know that hopefully there was going to be some value in trying to do that and trying to tell a different story about what quantum mechanics is about and bring it up to date and one thing that became clear to me as I tried to do that was part, it seemed to me part of the problem is that we tell quantum mechanics historically 
And as I say in the book, partly that's because it's such a great story, uh, you know, uh, how it came about. And you then you have this long standing argument between Bohr and Einstein and they're in both really fascinating characters. And so is Heisenberg. And so we go through it like that. But the problem with that is that there's absolutely no reason to think that the, what's important about quantum mechanics is what was first discovered about it. Um, and in fact, it seemed to me quite the opposite, that, as I say in the book, if we had this theory, if we were making this theory now, we probably wouldn't call it quantum mechanics. The quantization is an aspect that falls out at the end rather than, you know, it motivated the, 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 the people to start looking into it. But that doesn't mean that it was the most important or the crucial aspect of the theory. And I don't think it is. So I wanted to get away from that usual way that we tell the story historically and to sort of start with what seem now to be the basic principles and weave the historical story into that as and when was appropriate. So I wanted to find a different way of telling the story. How, so have you upset people? Have you had people uh, writing to you angry letters saying, oh, you can't send this? Um, not very much, okay. actually, so far. But I suspect that part of that is because the people I am likely to upset most in this book are the people who believe in the many worlds interpretation. And I think they will... Turn, just ignore it as they generally ignore criticisms i have to say not all of them but you know a lot of them do um uh because there are those there are some of them in this field who are such committed believers that you know you'll never make a dent on 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 that and you know and i i think the truth is that there is no convincing argument that completely rules it out of court i try to explain why to my mind it, it isn't so much wrong as something that, if you take it seriously, dissolves into an incoherent way of thinking about reality, really, that it's an unthinkable theory. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, my experience, even before writing the book, they don't want to know. Um, so I don't know. They may all be kind of, you know, saying, look at this. Load of rubbish, you know. Let's let's not not take any notice of that. Um, but otherwise, no. People have been very nice and very good and supportive. Um, and you know, everyone that I spoke to as I was writing the book was incredibly supportive. I mean, what it has meant, and I knew this all along, is that of course now I get probably one or two a week um, emails of people who have their own private theory of quantum mechanics and what it means, and you know, can I look at it and write about it and uh, yeah, you know that that was kind of inevitable, and I yeah. have any, any breakthroughs yet? Um, surprisingly, not. No. <laughs> uh, and uh, for a start, I'm not the person you need to be talking to about this. You know, I'm not claiming to be an expert on these things. I'm an interested observer, like I am for most of the books, all the books really that I write, and I don't have the time. Yeah. Um, but no, it, uh, so far the feedback has been it, it it it's been very nice and productive, and I've had dis good discussions with people in the community. Great. It sort of opened up my opened up my eyes to what a, 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 an amazing, fascinating, frustrating subject quantum mechanics is, and I suspect will continue to be, you know, for the next 20, 30 years at least. And so, you know, that's my life. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I can imagine this is something that I'll want to keep coming back to. Yeah. So what are you writing now? I think I can, I feel I can tell you now because just yesterday I sent off the 
uh, not there's never a final manuscript really until it appears in print, but the um, sort of revised version of the next book, um, having got editors' input on it, and it's about um, cell biology. So it's uh, you know a, a, a lovely <laughs> change to go into something completely different, and it arises from. Uh, an experiment that I was involved in um, it, it, through a project uh, that was funded by the, the Welcome, where I had what they call a mini brain grown from a piece of me, a piece of my arm. Um, a bit of my arm was scooped out, turned into stem cells, and from that grown into neurons that organized themselves into one of these structures that some people at least call a mini brain because it has some of the sort of early structures of an embryonic type brain. And I just, I found it completely mind boggling that this was possible. And, uh, and it made me as it was intended to, it made me start to think about questions of identity and self and individuality, as well as the sheer technology of, um, manipulating cells and reprogramming cells this way. So the book is all about saying the cell is really, you know, where you start with, with biology. Brilliant. Well, I mean, I don't want to scare away all our physicist listeners, so I'm going to have to see whether uh, <laughs> biology world exists and whether they'll let me do their podcast and then we can talk about it at length. That would be great. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's, I mean, there's there's aspects of, obviously, there's aspects of physics, of self-organisation and really of computation in this way of thinking about biology. So there's, you know, there's physics there too. Congratulations again to the winning book Beyond Weird by Philip Ball. And thank you so much to Tushna for joining me here in the Cosmic Shed. Wonderful as always, Andrew. And uh, if you are at all stuck for podcasts to listen to, I ridiculously decided that a good idea would be to produce one podcast a day of the Cosmic Shed podcast during Advent. You can go back, there are some science writers in there, there are some NASA engineers, there are some people from Battlestar Galactica, and maybe some people from Star Wars. Uh, We'll be returning to our mini-series of the 30th anniversary of Physics World in January, and thank you very much for listening. Physics World